Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Excited to get into what God has to say to us through Luke chapter 7. Have you ever considered that we have reminders all around us? Perhaps you're driving in a car down the road, turn on the radio, and that song comes on that reminds you of a certain season of life. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you're driving on the interstate or highway, and there's a car that is the exact color, make, and model of, say, one of your friends or family's vehicles. And instantly, you think of that person. It's a reminder. I'm willing to bet that if I walked into your home, there'd be pictures all around your house of maybe people that you hold dear to you, family, friends, and, and maybe even pictures of certain events in life that you want to be reminded of in your home. It's funny, whenever I go home, I, I always see this picture my parents have up of me in the house. It reminds me of the, just the athletic body I had when I was in seventh grade. You want to see it? It's coming up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, you might be thinking, did you just wake up to take that picture? No, that was actually my hairdo. Now, I know most of you are thinking now two things. One, what happened to your hair? And two, how did you get so good looking? We could talk after the service. <laughs> Reminders are all around us, reminding us of things that perhaps would be easily forgotten if they were not to be seen by us. Think of how forgetful we are. You leave the house, you forget your wallet at home, you lose track of where your keys are, you park in the same spot you always park. And when you walk out of the store, you forgot where you parked. Now, some of you aren't laughing because you know it's true. And, and it's just so easy for us to forget things. We're, we're forgetful people. And yet, what I, what I find in myself is how often I am so forgetful of that which matters most. Namely, the gospel. The story we are looking at serves as a reminder. John Newton, writing of this passage, said this. It, this story, reminds my soul of that which I am so prone to forget. So my aim this morning is to simply remind us of things that are not new, but things that we are so prone to forget, namely who Jesus is, who we are, and what he has done. The title of this message is How a Prostitute Got to Heaven. And to find out how she got to heaven, we will look at two encounters. One, first, with a sinful woman. Secondly, one with a religious man. And thirdly, Jesus' verdict upon meeting with these two people. We begin in verse 36, starting with the sinful woman. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, in first century Judaism, this wasn't something that was all that uncommon. In fact, if there was a, a rabbi who was traveling through a particular city, often the religious leaders of that city would gather together and invite him into their home, and, and they would share a meal together and open up all the doors of the home so that literally, oftentimes, hundreds of people would file in and file along the walls of the home. If you've ever been to a conference, perhaps you've seen that in some conferences they have what is called a panel discussion 
where you have people sitting on stage just talking among one another, and you get to listen in. Well, that's the modern-day version of these gatherings. And so Simon, Pharisee, invites Jesus in with his religious friends and leaders of the town to come and to have a conversation that would be public for all in the town to hear. And so people gather, they're listening, and we think, well, if this isn't so uncommon, why is it written down? Well, because of what is written in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Luke uses the words, and behold, so that when we read this, we would understand that something totally unexpected is about to happen. Well, what is it that is so unexpected? And behold, a woman of the city. In other words, this is just a phrase simply to tell us and to communicate that this was a popular woman. People knew who she was. If she were to walk through a marketplace, you would know exactly who the woman was if you were to see her. The question we must then ask is, why is this woman so popular? What is it that makes her so well-known? Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, this is more, of course, than just that she was a general sinner. We would assume that. In most Jewish literature that was written around this time, I found that often when women were described as sinners, it, we, it was because they were prostitutes. This is not just a sinful woman in general. She was a prostitute. In, in other words, this was a woman who, she wasn't well known because she was the nice lady at the post office. She was well known because she had given her life over to men time and time again. Her life's job was selling her body. Now, we must stop for a moment and try to imagine the shame this woman must have experienced. Can you, can you even fathom? Here is a woman, no matter where she goes, if there are people around, they know what she has done. Can you imagine if your darkest sins were known by all around you? How it would change what you do on a daily basis. How much shame you would live in. Every time this woman would go into public and people would look at her, she would know in the back of her mind that they know what she knows that no one knows. And it would fill her with such shame and guilt. Friends, she had made a mess of her life and everyone knew it. And perhaps some of you have experienced this before. Maybe there's a time in your life, there's a group of people that you used to do some things with that were just, just terrible. And as the years have gone on, you've grown distant from those people, but let's say you go out and you go to the grocery store or the gym or a public place, and all of a sudden, you cross paths with those people. And what happens every time you are immediately feeling like you are underneath a dark cloud of shame? Why? Because they know the real you. And this woman 
must have experienced this on a daily basis. Surely she was filled with such great shame. And it is this popular prostitute woman who then walks into a house filled with people from the city and religious leaders of the day with what Luke describes in verse 37, what she has in her hand, an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, this was a flask that was made out of some of the most expensive materials in the day. In fact, people often didn't own an alabaster flask because, frankly, it was so expensive nobody could own it. So the question is, why would Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, record this in the Bible? Friends, I believe every jot and tittle is in our Bibles on purpose. Do you believe that? And if that is the case, we must ask the question, if there's a purpose for God to place this in the Bible, what is it? Well, imagine this afternoon as you're driving home and you stop at a stoplight. You're listening to some music and all of a sudden what pulls up next to you is a hot rod Ferrari. Immediately, you assume something. And what you assume is not that they work at McDonald's. Now, I've told people, I don't know what McDonald's is paying these days, but if they're paying enough to get a Ferrari, give me an application. But you don't assume they work at McDonald's. Simply put, because a person working at McDonald's isn't going to possess a red Ferrari. It's the principle that the things that we possess often reflect how much we earn. Let me give you another example. A couple Weeks ago, my wife and I um, went to Asheville, North Carolina, and we visited the Biltmore Mansion. Some of you might have been there. Just this huge place on a huge ton of acres, and, and the, the home, the home, huh, has 35 bedrooms and 43 bathrooms. And uh, yeah, you never have to share a bathroom. <laughs> and and, and, and the, just as, as big as it is, you're walking through this huge library that I'm totally lusting over, and, and, and there's just so many places, and just massive. And you know what I never thought? I never thought, these poor homeowners. It must have been so hard to make ends meet. Why? Because the house is huge. And, and, and there's no, no poor person is going to own a mansion. And the reason why is because possessions often reflect earnings. So, with that in mind, when the Bible tells us that this woman owned an alabaster flask, God has one intention to show us how deep this woman was in her sin. Think about it. A prostitute owning an alabaster flask? How could she she afford such a thing? It's because she had been a prostitute for a long time. Long time. This wasn't something that she had started up overnight or even several years. This was a prolific prostitute. So she takes the expensive flask of ointment, verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. Leading up to this chapter, Luke records that Jesus had spoken to large crowds on several accounts concerning the word of God. And what we infer from this passage is that this woman was a part of one of those crowds at one point. She heard Jesus preach the word of God concerning her sin and the forgiveness that is offered in him alone. And when she heard it, she did not need to be convinced. 
And she, I believe, repented and trusted in Christ as her Lord and Savior, as we will see later in this passage. And so now, she finds out where Jesus is going to be, a room packed full of people, religious leaders and Jesus sitting at a table. She barges in. Everybody knows who she is and what she has done. She carries the most, probably the most expensive possession she has. She, she gets close enough to Jesus that she sees his hair, his hands, his dirty feet, and she weeps. Why? Well, growing up, I often had two, two habits in the mornings. First was to watch the early morning news. Second was to eat toaster strudels. Now, I believe, this might be a sermon for another day, that toaster strudels are one of the greatest acts of God's common grace on the planet. <laughs> That's a message for another day. So I would sit with my toaster strudel and I'd be watching the early morning news. You know what one of my favorite segments on the early morning news was? It's whenever they had someone who was in need of an organ and and someone who gave an organ and and they set up a meeting for the first time. You know what I'm talking about? And, And every, I mean, count on it, every time... They set something up. They had the cameramen all over. They're talking to this person in the room, talking to this person in the room. And then finally, the big moment's coming. They're going to they're gonna open the doors, and they're going to see each other for the first time. And you know what happens every time? Doors swing open. They see each other for the first time. And they weep. They just weep. Why? Because this is the natural human response when we see someone who's changed our lives. It's just what we do. So this woman comes in. She had heard Jesus preach in front of thousands of people, and she had received him as her Savior, and now she sees him up close for the first time, and she weeps. Because the message of forgiveness he preached has saved her life. And as she begins to weep, she looks down and sees his dirty feet. Verse 38, and she began to wet his feet with her tears as she's literally, in in the original language, waterfalls coming out of her eyes. As the, the tears are flowing, she leans over to Jesus' feet so her tears might fall on his dirty feet. And then she gets on the ground and wipes them with the hair of her head. Uh, Friends, this is often a passing point, but history tells us that for a woman to let down her hair in public was no thing to take light of. In fact, in some literature that I've read, I saw that if, if a woman was to let down her hair in front of another man and her husband were to find out, that would be legal grounds for divorce. It was a sign of intimacy. It is as if when she lets her hair down before Jesus that she is saying, Jesus, I am holding nothing back from you. Then in an incredible display of affection, she kisses his feet and anoints them with the ointment. She pours out the most expensive possession she owns on the dirty feet of Jesus. What does this tell us? This prostitute woman was so grateful that Jesus has forgiven her sins that she cannot contain the love she has for him. 
What a beautiful display of worship, is it not? And while all of these are going on, Simon the Pharisee is watching the entire thing. So Luke transitions us to the second encounter Jesus has, that with the religious man, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon the Pharisee who invited Jesus over is not only, listen, not only angry at the woman for who she is and what she is doing. He is also mad at Jesus for how he's responding to this woman. So notice he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. In other words, he's saying, if Jesus were really who he said he was, he would not be associating himself with a prostitute because after all, what kind of God associates himself with sinners? And friends, what this shows us is Simon is so blind, so blind. He has failed to see who Jesus really is, that he is not some moral superior being deity seated lofty upon his throne away from sinners. No, he is the son of God, the friend of sinners. But he's blind to this, and so he thinks to himself, if Jesus were really who he says he is, he would not be doing this. And while Simon is thinking these things, these judgmental thoughts, look at verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, I love this. I mean, there are some times where you, you kind of have to, you see the humor of Jesus encrypted into a passage. I, I kind of like to think that this was a humorous saying of Jesus. I mean, think about what's happened. Uh, here is Simon thinking in his head, hasn't said anything out loud, thinking in his head, if Jesus were really who he says he is, he wouldn't be acting this way. And so Jesus responds, answering him. It's as if Jesus were saying, oh, really? You, you don't think I'm God? You don't think I'm a prophet? Then I'll just read your mind. <laughs> so he goes on to say, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The story is simple, there's, there's two debtors. Both owe a debt, they can't pay. And the moneylender comes and says, I'm canceling the debt of both. Jesus says, the one that will love the moneylender more is the one who had the greater debt paid. So what's his point? Verse 44, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, oh, don't miss that. Simon invited Jesus over. And yet now Jesus is directing his attention towards the woman. Reminds me of Isaiah 6, 66, 2 which says, and this is the one to whom I will look. He is broken in spirit, contrite at heart, and trembles at my word. Who gets the gaze of God here in this place this morning? It is not the people who think you've cleaned yourself up. You think you're good. The people in this very room and in the world today that God is looking at are those who are broken. 
we realize I have nothing to offer him. It is all of grace. So in an act of irony, Jesus turns to the woman, and it is as if he is saying to Simon, Simon, be like this woman. Now, some of you parents know what, you're talk- what, what I'm talking about. And growing up, I had three little brothers, one of them who's here, and just in case you're wondering, I'm superior in every way. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and I remember growing up as a kid, my parents used to get on to me. I don't know why. I, I wasn't a naughty kid. I was an angel in, in many ways, just so kind and loving. But anyways, so I, I remember my parents would get on to me sometimes, and, and they would say things like this. Perhaps you've heard it. Brad, you need to be like your brother. You ever heard that? Brad, Brad, you see your brother? Can you just do what he's doing? Jesus looks at the religious man, Simon, and says, Simon, look at her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. In other words, Simon did not greet Jesus at the door. He didn't ask to hold his coat when he walked in. Didn't ask Hey, can I take your shoes? Didn't say, hey, do you need a drink of water? None of it. He treated the Son of God less than an ordinary individual. Friends, that is the height of depravity, that Jesus can be sitting in your very own house, and you don't even see that he's Jesus. He's blind to the reality of who Jesus is. But the woman has done all of these things and so much more because she, by the grace of God, knows who Jesus is and responds accordingly. So considering all of these things, Jesus then gives a verdict. Verse 47. Therefore, light of all that I have said, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. And don't be confused here. Jesus is not stating the motive behind this woman's actions. Rather, he is stating the reason for this woman's actions. This woman has not earned forgiveness because of her actions. Rather, the reason why she has shown such great love and affection is because she has been forgiven. This woman had experienced the forgiveness of God and thus pours out her affections on Jesus in heartfelt thanks. But notice the last statement, verse 47. But he who is forgiven little loves little. At first glance, it appears that Jesus is saying that it is possible to be forgiven little. And as a result, the one that is forgiven little will love Jesus little. And on the other hand, the person who is forgiven much will love Jesus more. I mean, Suppose there's a 100-year-old man who's been an atheist for all of his life, and there's a 7-year-old girl, and both are converted on the same day. Is Jesus saying that because the 100-year-old atheist has more sin to be forgiven of than the 7-year-old girl, that he will love Jesus more than her? Is Jesus saying that for some of you who 
You don't even remember when you became a Christian because you were practically born in a church sanctuary. I mean, you've been at church your whole life. You've heard the Bible taught to you by your parents. You maybe went to a Christian school. You've, the Bible's just been ingrained in your DNA. You don't even remember when you became a Christian. You just know that you are. And is Jesus saying that you will love him less than the person who, say, came to Jesus after 50 years of sin? What point is Jesus trying to make? Imagine with me there are two men. The first man goes camping for a whole week in the middle of the mountains. Beautiful scenery. All by himself. And on the last night of his camping excursion, he hears a rustling outside of his tent in the middle of the night. So he peeks his head outside the tent, and he looks, and to his horror, he sees a large grizzly bear. Now, the bad news isn't that he saw a bear, but that the bear saw him. So immediately he gets out of the tent and he begins to run away, fast away from the grizzly bear. And the grizzly bear begins to chase him. As the man trips upon a branch on the ground and he falls to his feet, the bear grabs him, puts his mouth around his leg, and rips his leg off. The man now, bleeding profusely, is crawling on the forest ground, trying to get away from the bear. The bear throws his leg out of his mouth, runs to the man, and rips his arm off. The man now with one arm and one leg is just pleading for mercy from this grizzly bear. And as he's crawling across the ground, the bear comes and rips his head off. And he died, in case you were wondering. <laughs> the second man goes camping for the week in the middle of the mountains. Beautiful scenery, all by himself. And in the middle of the night, on the last night a small poisonous spider, hardly noticeable, crawls up his arm. Some of you are like shaking in your seat right now. Crawls up his arm and bites him on the neck without him even realizing it. And he dies peacefully in his sleep an hour later. Which one's more dead? <laughs> I mean, the, the answer, of course, is is neither. Because there are not levels of deadness. I mean, one man you could hardly recognize, he's missing his head. And the other man looks like he's just taking a nap. But at the end of the day, to be without life is to be dead. There are not people that are more dead than others, and consequently, there are not people that are less dead than others. If you do not have life, you are dead. What is Jesus doing when he says he who is forgiven little loves little? He is blowing away the false categories that Simon had created in his mind regarding morality. You see, Simon, in his heart, believed that there's two kinds of people in the world, the good and the bad. The good people, like himself, live moral lives, do good things, and maintain separation from the bad people. The bad people, on the other hand, like the prostitute woman, live immoral lives. They do wicked things. They corrupt society, and they are social outcasts. So Jesus stands in the face of Simon's false ideology and says, he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, Simon, the reason 
you have been so cold and apathetic towards me is not because you've been forgiven little, but because you think you have little to be forgiven of. But consequently, this woman who, is, who knows how broken she is, who knows that her sins are many, realizes I deserve none of this forgiveness and pours out her love upon the feet of Jesus. Friends, the point Jesus is making is plain. Regardless of your career, your religious beliefs, your morals, if you are not following the biblical Jesus, you're dead in your sin. And the reason why this woman has shown such affection is she knows that she was dead and she's been given life in Christ alone. Oh, friends, heaven will not be full of good people. Hell is full of good people. Steve Lawson put it great when he said, hell is full of sincere religious people never born again, and heaven is full of immoral people who repented and believed in Christ. Oh, church, do not miss this point. The reason why our affections for Jesus are so often little is because we do not ponder the pit that Jesus dragged us out of. This is precisely what David does in Psalm 103 when he recounts what God has done for him. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Think of all the sin that God has forgiven you of. Every lustful thought, every selfish action, every word of gossip, every outburst of anger, every lie, every self-righteous thought, every outworking of pride in which you think you're better than someone else, all of it, God has covered in the blood of Jesus and has said, you are forgiven. My friends, when we look at ourselves, when we look into the depths of our heart, you know what we should say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We should be humble, a humble people that all of our sin is forgiven in Christ. Friend, can I tell you the most dangerous spot you could be in today is if you are bored with the gospel. Oh, if you are bored with the gospel, oh, I plead with you that you would repent. How can you be bored with that which has saved your soul? So Jesus declares before the religious leaders and all present that day what he already knew to be true, verse 48. And he said to her in front of all these people, in front of all the religious leaders, in front of Simon himself, your sins are forgiven. 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 Here is this woman who has been buried in all of her sin, all of her shame, a woman that was literally known as a sinner, and now Jesus declares by, to all, she is no longer be, to be labeled a sinner, but to be labeled forgiven. What grace. But as Jesus declares this, verse 49, how sad. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? 
Those who sat and dined with Jesus failed to see that what this woman has seen, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. How has she seen this? Why is she forgiven? Verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. She is not forgiven because of her worship, her tears, or her works. No, she is forgiven because she's placed her faith in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said of this verse, her faith rests not in what she is, nor what she shall be, nor what she feels or knows, but in what Christ is and what he has done and in who he is. Now, what does all this mean for you and I? I mean, this is a great story, but what are the implications for our lives? There are three. Number one, if you are not following Jesus, you're a walking dead man. You say, dead? I, I mean, I feel pretty alive. Well, I'd hope that you are. But friend, you are spiritually a corpse. The Bible is clear in Ephesians 2 that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. What it means to be dead spiritually is that we have no spiritual life, no inclination to know God, no desire to obey him. In fact, what's worse is we resist him and we deny him and we go our own way. And the heartbreaking reality of all this is God has created you and I for his own good pleasure to display his glory, but we trample over his glory because we love our glory more than his glory. And to make matters worse, when often we think about God, we do not think of him as a sovereign Lord, but as a divine bellhop. They're ready to serve us when we need him, when we're in a pinch, then we plead for God to come. Friends, can I tell you, God does not exist for you. You exist for God. And if you mix that around, you are damned. Piper said this, the reason we need a savior is not just that we are in the doghouse with God and need to be forgiven of offending his glory. We need a savior because we are in the morgue. In the doghouse, you might whimper. You might say you are sorry. You might make some good resolutions. You might decide to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what can you do if you're in the morgue? God is not in the business of making bad people good. God is in the business of raising the dead to life in his son. And like the prostitute woman this morning, if you say, that's me, can I tell you it is a grace that you realize that's you because a dead man doesn't know he's dead. And so I'm pleading with you, do not harden your heart today. If you feel something in your heart, God's moving in you, we would love to talk to you after the service, because all you have to do is plead with him, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me? And like the song we sang earlier, the Father's arms are open wide. Number two, if you are following Jesus, you're a walking miracle. A mom and a single woman were once having dinner. Mom had three children. A single woman just came over to spend time with her. And as they were eating dinner, the single woman looked down, and the youngest child picked up a quarter, put it in his mouth, and swallowed it. The single woman shrieked in horror. Did you just see what he did? 
But the mom, oddly, just sat calm and collected. She said, oh, honey, you don't understand. I'm accustomed to this. When the first child swallowed a quarter, we rushed him to the ER. The second child swallowed a quarter, we got it out ourselves. When he swallows a quarter, we take it out of his allowance. (laughs) We're accustomed to it. As Christians, we become accustomed to our salvation. We don't think about it. We just go day in, day out, living the Christian life, going to work, spending time with our family, serving people, even serving Jesus, but we forget we were once dead. And because of that, we grow cold. And when we grow cold, friends, we become proud of our obedience, thinking that the reason I'm so holy is because I got this thing down. (sighs) Friends, We must live moment by moment in this reality. As I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. We have to preach that to ourselves every moment of every day. Lest we be a person that sees but forget we were blind. Spurgeon put it this way, brethren, we are to be a show, an exhibition case in which God will exhibit the riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Angels will count it a high joy to study the life of a regenerate man, to see him rise from death and said to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Then listen to this, what is so precious in God's esteem ought to excite our praise continually. Oh, friends, we ought to live in a constant worship service because we remember I was in the pit of my sin. I wanted nothing to do with him, but he made me alive. And finally, number three. There is nothing more powerful than the gospel. Nothing. What comes to your mind when you think of the word power? Do you think of a fast car, a natural disaster, human authority? Milton Vincent, in his book, The Gospel Primer, helps us see what the Bible ascribes the word power to when he writes, indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun and in the lightning speed of a recently discovered star seen streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. Yet, in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. How powerful, then, must the gospel be that it would be called the power of God? How is this power of the gospel displayed? Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You say, well, what does that look like practically? How does that power of the gospel look, appear in our lives and in the lives of those around us? Recently, I read the story of Chaplain Henry Garricky. He's a chaplain in the 1945 and 1946 World War II. 
He was assigned to be the Protestant chaplain to 15 of Adolf Hitler's chief leaders and advisors, wicked men. And as these men were wanted for their ver- waiting for their verdict, rather, during the Nuremberg trials at the close of World War II, these wicked, vile men were being charged for war crimes and the death of six million Jews. It's hard to think of a worse person. And day after day, Chaplain Garricky would minister to the men, giving them Bibles, sharing the gospel, and showing them the love of Jesus for a whole year. Garricky writes about what he experienced. I quote, day by day, I went about sharing the gospel with some of the most vile men I have ever encountered. After months upon months of rejection, I wondered if I had been wasting my time. Do you ever feel that way? Do you have a child who just rejects the gospel time and time again? A spouse, a friend, a family member, a neighbor? And if you're honest, there are times you think, I'm wasting my time. Chaplain Garrick, he felt that way. And he said this, after all, how could God save such people? But towards the end of Garricky's tenure with these men, he began to see the power of the gospel at work. One man trusted Christ as Savior. Soon another, then another. And before he knew it, nearly all the men present placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Months later, after they were sentenced to death, Garricky recalls the last words he heard from one of the former Nazis. He writes, as the men stood on the gallows, Riddentrop, the first man converted out of the group, said aloud for all to hear, listen to these words. I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. Though I once cried, Hail Hitler, I shall soon sing forever, Worthy is the Lamb. Garricky writes, I cannot fathom how such men could be changed, but only by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, I come to you today and I ask the question, what can make a Nazi a saint? What can make a prostitute a child of God? What can make a blind sinner see the glory of Jesus? What can make a dead, unregenerate man alive and passionate to follow his maker? The powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is this powerful gospel that has assured us that one day we will gather together with this forgiven Nazi, this forgiven prostitute, this redeemed thief, this redeemed liar, this redeemed alcoholic, this redeemed drug abuser, and on and on and on. We will gather with them forever because of Jesus, and we will sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Friend, if you have nothing to sing over today, you will sing this forever. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, because he has redeemed us and forgiven us through his blood. And so my friends, I leave you with this. 
in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. These words are just so good. The saying is trustworthy. In other words, you could put your full weight on it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. Oh, your matchless grace. We think of the psalmist who says that your grace, your grace is unsearchable. We believe that. We are reminded in this passage that we are often forgetful of what you have done on our behalf. Forgive us. Help us to be restored to the joy of our salvation. And then for those in this room today, Lord, that you are showing them for the first time they are dead in their sin. They've made a mess of their life. They're not sure of any way out. Would you show them that you came to invite them into your life, that they can be forgiven? As we sing this song, Lord, would you help us to remember all we have is Christ because he's all we need. We plead this now in his name. Amen.